From the garden level of Harvard Medical School's historic Vanderbilt Hall in Boston, this is Think Research, a podcast that discusses the stories behind medical research. I'm Abby, your host. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. Every time we use an antibiotic, we are applying selective pressure for bacteria to evolve resistance. Those bacteria that have the right mutation or can otherwise withstand the attack of the drug survive, reproduce, and pass that advantage on. This can create antibiotic-resistant strains that are difficult or impossible to treat with current drugs. In the United States, around 20,000 people every year become infected with an antibiotic-resistant bacteria. On today's episode, Dr. Bill Hanich talks about how bacteria become resistant to antibiotics. He also explains why even though bacteria have been exposed to natural antibiotics for millions of years, there are not more resistant strains out there. Dr. Hanage is an associate professor of epidemiology at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and a faculty member in the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics. He researches the epidemiology and evolution of infectious diseases using genetics to trace the emergence and spread of dangerous pathogens causing pneumonia, meningitis, and drug-resistant infections. Hello, Dr. Hanage. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. You're an infectious disease epidemiologist. What does that entail, and how did you get to this point in your career? So it does say, like, on my, you know, on my badge that I'm an infectious disease epidemiologist, but um, I don't actually have any formal qualifications in epidemiology. Um, my friend, Mark Lipsitch, who's in the office next door to me, sometimes describes me as an evolutionary biologist undercover in the Department of Epidemiology. And... The thing is that, you know, infectious diseases, pathogens, evolve just like every other living thing. And by understanding how they evolve, we can try to help stop them infecting us, stop making us sick, stop making us die. And so when you look at the evolution of a pathogen, you're getting very close to epidemiology already. Epidemiology is the science of trying to understand what makes people sick. And infectious disease epidemiology is interesting in part, at least, because of the way these pathogens evolve. The way, I think, to describe the difference between infectious disease epidemiology and regular epidemiology is that regular epidemiology is a bit like a game of cards. It's based on exposures and probability and so on and so forth, or a game of pinball. Whereas infectious disease epidemiology is like a game of pool, because what happens in the last step changes what's going to happen in the next step because the rates of exposure are always changing because the frequencies of the pathogen are either going up as you get an outbreak or down as the outbreak comes under control and you get some level of immunity or a vaccine or whatever. Um, can you step back a little and tell us about your background? Sure. Um, well, I, have a, I did my degree in biochemistry and then very briefly worked as an actor, which was actually tremendously useful because, you know, if you've been on stage with one other performer and you're each playing six characters for an hour and a half and there's no script, then, you know, giving a talk at a scientific conference or teaching becomes really, you know, that, it holds no fear for you. Um, but 
after I'd done that, I was beginning to feel like I needed to do something more, more challenging. And so I went to do a PhD. I did that at Imperial College uh, at Hammersmith Hospital. And then after I finished that, I was lucky enough to be able to get a job in Oxford in the laboratory of Brian Spratt, who was a really, really formative influence on me. And from there, we we all moved in the lab back to Imperial, where I eventually became a reader, which is one of, one of these wonderfully sort of slightly Harry Potterish British titles. It's basically the same thing as like an associate professor or something. And I moved here in 2010. How do you predict if and when bacteria will become resistant to treatment? Can you predict it? Yes and no. My, uh, so one of my favorite quotes um, is from the character Ian Malcolm, who you may remember is the mathematical biologist in Jurassic Park, played by Jeff Goldblum. Jeff Goldblum has had a major impact on my career, by the way. He also played Jim Watson in a BBC uh, drama documentary about the discovery of the structure of DNA, which made me want to go into <laughs> science. Um, but the character of Ian Malcolm in Jurassic Park says, life will find a way. And in general, we have to understand that if we start using a drug in order to treat something, we are putting a big, big selective pressure. And if there's any variation within the population in how susceptible or how likely a bacterium is to be killed by that drug, then those more resistant things will start to spread. Now, the reason I say yes and no is that, you know, there are some bacteria uh, that have yet to become resistant to penicillin. A good example is Streptococcus pyogenes, which is also known as group A strep. It causes strep throat and some other um, nastier diseases. But it's always been susceptible to penicillin, despite the fact that it's been exposed to penicillin innumerable times over the last few decades. So why is it still susceptible? Why has it not become resistant? I don't think we really know. So we can be pretty sure that resistance will emerge, but there are occasional pockets where it does not. And it's really kind of peculiar to think that everything isn't resistant already. It's one of the great unanswered questions in, uh, in infectious disease epidemiology. You know, the antibiotic that is almost synonymous with the term is penicillin. And we have to remember that Fleming discovered penicillin when a little spore of mold floated in through his lab window and landed on a plate, which was growing bacteria. And when he came back, he looked at it and said, apparently, that's funny, and noticed that the bacteria were not growing around the mold. And eventually, Flory and Chain figured out the uh, responsible compound was penicillin, mass-produced it. And, um, you know, penicillin, as we know it, became a, a viable thing for treating people. Now, the mold has been making penicillin for for millions of years. And bacteria have been facing things like penicillin for millions of years. Uh, what antibiotics actually do in nature before, you know, rather than medicine, is a, is a very good question. Some people think that they're signaling molecules. Some people think that they are just literally a defense from one organism against another. Bacteria themselves produce lots of toxins that will kill other bacteria. And these things have been going on for millions of years. One way to illustrate this is that um, my friend Gabriel Perron, who's now at Bard, did a really interesting study um, in the Canadian permafrost. They got a 
he got a, a core from the Canadian permafrost. Uh, obviously, the deeper you go in that, the further back you go in time. And in a stratum of that that was estimated to have been laid down 6,000 years ago, he found a gene that conferred resistance to a drug that did not exist in nature until the 1970s. It's, it was, it's not a drug that exists in nature. It's what's called a semi-synthetic antibiotic, which means that you take something that nature has provided and you change it a little bit. You tweak it just to make it a little bit different and hope that it's a little bit better than the original. So this drug never existed until the 1970s, but there was something around 6,000 years ago that had a gene that conferred resistance to it. And I should point out, it's not that that bacteria was seeing the future. It's, it's that that bacteria were, was encountering something that was a bit like the drug that eventually came along, that was eventually produced by humans, and had developed a means to be resistant to it. And then, you know, when, when Gabe comes along and sort of says, you know, I wonder if you're resistant to this. It's like, yep, been there, seen that, got the gene. That's also why you can find evidence of antibiotic resistance genes in, like, these caves where no human has ever set foot. There are several different ways a bacteria can become resistant. One of them is like a, a target change. It just mutates the target so that the antibiotic no longer binds to it, no longer has that effect. Another mechanism which is really important are these things called efflux pumps. They are quite literally molecular pumps that sit on the outside of the bacterium and pump bad things out. And obviously those things could be, you know, they could pump out a range of compounds. And those are quite energetically costly, but they can have, you know, these genes can be useful for quite a lot of different antibiotics. Another way is by chopping up the bacterium before it gets into the cell. Um, so, for instance, there's a whole group of genes called the extended spectrum beta-lactamases. And the beta-lactams are things like penicillin. These will be secreted by the bacterium and chop up any penicillin in the environment so that it no longer works. And extended spectrum just means that they don't just chop up penicillin, but all the other things that we've made, which are a bit like penicillin, in an effort to evade whatever you know, resistance mechanism the, uh, the bacteria have managed to evolve. Are antibiotics less helpful now? What does the future look like in your field? Um, antibiotics are still helpful in the sense that we can still, we can still use them. And even though resistance is increasing, like I said, it's not increasing to the point where everything becomes resistant. For reasons we don't really fully understand, there appears to be some kind of limit. So you should be you know, we should be careful about becoming too apocalyptic about these things. And also, people should remember that you can be killed by something that is not resistant to antibiotics. That's, it's, that's really important. Yeah. However, it is true that there are cases that are becoming more and more difficult to treat. There was that case in Nevada earlier this year um, of a lady who died from a bloodstream infection with a Klebsiella pneumoniae that was resistant to all of the antibiotics that were used to attempt to treat her. Now those things are still rare, but you know we see we can see very very highly resistant bacteria to huge numbers of classes of antibiotics here. Now, like I said, you know, they're not 
the, the world is not crawling in these things yet. However, you know, we should do more to understand how we can limit their spread because every time we don't stop them spreading, you're increasing the risk that, you know, somebody else is going to get that drug-resistant infection. Now, we, it's estimated that one person, a person dies in the U.S. roughly every 20 minutes from a drug-resistant infection. And that's now. If they become more common, then that'll be, you know, it'll become even more often, and it could affect. Uh, these things don't discriminate. You know, it, it could be you or a family member. So it's a really good idea to try and stop them before it gets to that stage. In order to stop these things transmitting, there are a few things that we can do and a few other things that we need to understand. One thing that we need to understand is, well, transmission. We need surveillance. We need people to be, and methods to be, checking out exactly where these things are. At the moment, you know, doctors tend to look at cases of disease. That's understandable, you know, but that means that hospital freezers and lab freezers all over the world are filled with isolates from cases of disease. But the cases of disease might be interesting and important, but what about the people who might not have developed disease but transmitted the bacteria to the unfortunate who eventually fell ill? Now, that means that we have to be able to look at transmission and carriage and things like that, which most of the time is not considered to be, frankly, as sexy as looking at disease. Now, what people can do to prevent transmission is another question. Um, really, just mechanical hand washing with soap and water is actually pretty effective. It's, you can see, you know, you can find online all kinds of guidance for how to do it properly. Um, and if you do that on a regular basis, you will, you, know, you will prevent transmission of bacteria. I mean, when I talk about this, I always do try to indicate to folks, don't become neurotic about it. I mean, bacteria are everywhere. Your hands are covered with them right now, millions of them. Uh, and I don't mean to pick on you. <laughs> so are mine. Um, and for the most part, they they are just, they're not doing anything. They're not making us sick. In fact, you know, it's increasingly clear that at least some bacteria are important to human health in terms of, you know, providing benefits. So do not become neurotic about it. But certainly, you know, if you want to prevent things going around, if you're going to a hospital or something like that, washing your hands you know, really well, trying to figure out how to do that. Uh, making use of any opportunities that there are to you know to practice hand hygiene is a really good idea. One of the interesting things about bacteria is that there are very few cases of in which the bacteria always causes disease. So a lot of the things which you know people might be scared of, like um, you know, pneumococcus, which causes pneumonia, or meningitis, or meningococcus that causes meningitis, or Staph aureus, you know, which is MRSA. These things do not cause disease most of the time. By looking at the things which are causing disease, it's from an evolutionary point of view, it's really a bit weird, because let's take meningococcus. Meningococcus, in a small number of cases, causes meningitis. It also colonizes, uh, you know, sort of nasopharynx, which is you know, the, basically your nose and mouth, in a reasonably large number of people, without incident. Now, it does not transmit from the brain to another brain. You know, looking at things which are causing disease is peculiar because, you know, they don't have any reproductive future. 
they are not going to get into another they're not going to get into another person via the brain you know the things which invade the blood are not going to get into another person via the blood a very famous british evolutionary biologist called john maynard smith once made the comment that trying to characterize populations of bacteria um, by looking at those which cause disease is a bit like trying to characterize humans um, by looking at a sample of people on death row. They're not representative and they don't have much reproductive future. The important thing for infectious disease epidemiology is transmission. So is disease linked to transmission in some way? So in, you know, in some cases, it pretty clearly is. Cholera is a good example. However, the things which live in your throat, for instance, if they get into your brain, they make you sick and you die, well, you're not going to be transmitting the disease, and in getting into your brain, they haven't suddenly become more likely to get into another person. It's transmission, which is what is selected for. And one of the interesting things in, in biology is a question of the evolution of virulence. There's often a notion that things will evolve to become friendlier, nicer. Uh, this is sort of this is the school of thought that holds that, for instance, um, Ebola is as dangerous as it is for humans because of the fact that it's maladapted to humans. This is, you know, it's actually true. Ebola is very maladapted to humans. I mean, the, there was a lot of concern about it, and to an extent that was justified um, in the sense that it was causing huge damage to health systems and really drastic loss of life. But there was never any risk that it was going to become a pandemic and spread very far because of the fact that it only becomes infectious in the later stages of disease when you're you know when you're really sick so as a if you consider that you know for a virus or for a bacterium that is limited to one host it has to get into another host making them sick really is kind of a peculiar thing it doesn't it's not helpful it's not an evolutionary advantage the distinction or the thing which where that's different is if by causing disease you get into more hosts by some means. If, for instance, uh, you're a flu virus, and by you know, causing these respiratory secretions, you know, and sneezing and so on, you're more likely to get into new hosts. And well, yes, virulence is something that will be selected for. But in you know, the link between transmission and virulence is a very, very dicey thing, which is quite difficult to establish. You were recently funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Can you tell us a bit about the project you're working on? Sure. Uh, so the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has you know, a lot of interest in trying to come up with effective ways to be able to uh, deliver care to parts of the world that you know, customarily do not get care. And our project that we've been working on is to try and figure out a way of detecting whether or not somebody is infected with a resistant bacterium that can be taken completely out into the field, um, wherever it be here or in sub-Saharan Africa, and you can test samples there and then. Now, it should be said this is very early days, but the there is a remarkable type of technology which is beginning to become um, online and using, and you know readily available, which is a handheld DNA sequencer. These things are the size of your smartphone, they're powered by a USB connection, and they can generate uh, not fantastic quality data, but data, you know, data that has is better than it has any right to be, given that it's a handheld sequencer run off a, run off a laptop. 
And these things have been used before. Um, one of the uh, one of my postdocs in my lab actually, during her PhD, went off into the bush in Guinea and used it to sequence Ebola, uh, which was a particularly challenging thing to do. So this technology is there. What we are trying to do in this uh, project that was funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is to use that information that you get from that sequence and then match it to a database of genomes that are associated with resistance. Now, this is unlike other ways of trying to do this because people typically say, oh, you have to sequence the resistance genes. And that, that's great. That's a fantastic way of doing it, to detect if genes which confer resistance are there. But what I'm wondering is if you can make use of the fact that generally resistance is confined only to a few lineages of the bacteria. So there's a whole load of things that are hardly ever resistant. And then a few things, a few closely related things that almost always are resistant. And you can, the, the hope is that by taking one of these, just, just a little bit of information from that handheld DNA sequencer, you'll be able to tell what part of the family tree your patient has disease from, you know, what part of the pathogen's family tree. And the approach that we are trying to use is to figure out, is to take the pathogen's family tree, and you can, you can make that family tree, you construct it from you know, known databases of DNA sequences, and then you take the information that you get from the handhold sequencer, and you just try and say, what part of the family tree does this pathogen come from? Is it from the part of the family tree which is always resistant, or from the part of the family tree which is hardly ever resistant? And you'd be able to get that information within a relatively short period of time. And you know the preliminary results are looking good. There's a lot of challenges that have to be overcome. And in terms of taking it down the line, you know, one of the most difficult challenges is getting DNA out of things. However, you know, the method appears to be showing some promise. I'm interested in trying to find better ways to study transmission. I've talked a lot about transmission because it's, you know, it's really important if you want to stop people getting sick. And people have been starting to use genomes or genetics in order to try and link people up. On the principle being that the person who transmitted to your patient will be the person with the most closely related bacteria or virus. Now, this makes intuitive sense, but it overlooks the fact that bacteria can evolve and accumulate mutations within a, a patient. So you might be infected with just one type, but over time it will mutate. And if what gets transmitted is not typical of the population within you, you might get things quite seriously wrong. And we've done theoretical work showing that this is the case. Now, what we want to do now is something different, which is to look at the variation within the host. So we don't just take one bacteria. You know, this, when, I was, when I was learning how to deal with bacteria, we were told you have to colony purify all the time, which means you streak it out on a plate and you pick one colony, that one colony, which is a descendant of one bacteria that landed on that petri dish in that place at that time. That's what you should work with, colony purified. But here, what we're doing instead is trying to look at the population within the individual. Because a population will be characterized by whatever mutations have occurred within it. So if you find that two people have the same variation in their population, if, you know, if at one point 
going into DNA language, and you know, there's both an adenine and a thymine, an A and a T in the genetic code, and it's at the same point in the genome in two people, then that's really unlikely to have happened by chance. Now, obviously, there's another um, level to this, which is that if it, you know, if evolution or selection has caused there to be variation at that point, then it will be in a lot of people. It will not just be in those two people who you're investigating to see if they transmitted to each other. So the principle behind it is that by figuring out which rare polymorphisms link, rare variants link two people, we can get some better idea in terms of who transmitted to whom. Preliminary work with computer simulations suggests that this is extremely this is extremely promising. Um, we're going to be taking it forward and actually looking in cases where we have a pretty good idea of what direction of transmission was, and then outbreaks and uh, transmission of MRSA and things like that. If you knew the true transmission tree, that's like the holy grail of infectious disease epidemiology. You would know exactly who infected whom. You would know exactly how many people on average were infected by a single infectious case you would be able to identify exactly what risk factors were associated with transmission. So you'd be able to get a whole new you know, way to intervene and prevent it. But we don't have very good methods at the moment for being able to detect transmission. And that's one of the reasons why we're doing this, to try and make it better. Thank you for joining us again, Dr. Hanage. It's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much for having me. next time on Think Research. If I walked up to you and I said, hey, I founded my own country and I'm currently working on designing the health system for the country and I think I can keep my entire population healthy without doing surgery, you'd ask me what I was smoking. And yet that's kind of the way we viewed surgery in the purview of global health, which is that, well, it's this nice icing on the cake add-on that we can get to later. When 17 million people die every year from surgical conditions, Dr. Mark Schreim talks about his work trying to improve access to surgery in low- and middle-income countries. Harvard Catalyst Think Research is supported by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Subscribe to Think Research on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find out more about our podcast or suggest topics for future episodes, visit our website, www.catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch.